The Ecology of Freedom, The Emergence and Dissolution of Hierarchy, by Murray Bookchin, AK Press, 2005. 2PM, who has added more to my life, done more for me as a human being, and established a sense of decency, care, understanding, and kindness more than anyone I've ever known. To you, dear Via, I not only dedicate this book, but give it to you with all my love. Murray, March 1st, 1985. Now, quoting from Peter Kropotkin's Ethics, we are enabled to conclude that the lesson which man derives from both the study of nature and his own history is the permanent presence of a double tendency towards a greater development on the side of sociality and on the other side of a consequent increase in the intensity of life. This double tendency is a distinctive characteristic of life in general. It is always present and belongs to life as one of its attributes, whatever aspects life may take on our planet or elsewhere. And this is not a metaphysical assertion of the universality of the moral law or a mere supposition. Without the continual growth of sociality and consequently of the intensity and variety of sensations, life is impossible. Now, quoting from Minima Moralia, from Theodore Adorno, we are forgetting how to give presents. Violation of the exchange principle has something nonsensical and implausible about it. Here and there, even children eye the giver suspiciously, as if the gift were merely a trick to sell them brushes or soap. Instead, we have charity, administered beneficence, the planned pastoring over of society's visible source. In its organized operations, there is no longer room for human impulses. Indeed, the gift is necessarily accompanied by humiliation through its distribution, its just allocation, in short, through treatment of the recipient as an object. Ontology, as the ground of ethics, was the original tenant of philosophy. Their divorce, which is the divorce of the objective and subjective realms, is the modern destiny. Their reunion can be effective, if at all, only from the objective end, that is to say, through a revision of the idea of nature, and it is becoming rather than abiding nature which would hold out any such promise. From the imminent direction of its total evolution, there may be elicited a destination of man by whose terms the person, in the act of fulfilling himself, would at the same time realize a concern of universal substance. Hence would result a principle of ethics which is ultimately grounded neither in the autonomy of self nor in the needs of the community, but in an objective assignment by the nature of things. That was Hans Jonas in The Phenomenon of Life. Acknowledgements. I would like to thank the late Angus Cameron of Alfred A. Knopf Incorporated, who initially contracted this book three decades ago and continually encouraged me to work on it in the early 70s. I also owe a profound debt to Michael Riordan of Cheshire Books, who zealously saw to its publication in 1982. Dimitri Rosopoulos of Black Rose Books republished the book in 1991 with a new introduction that revises and balances out a number of the views that appeared in the 1982 edition. 
I want to thank Janet Beale for her suggestions and her role in making the new preface for this 2005 edition more readable. For translating the book and seeing to its publication in Germany, as well as for many suggestions and criticisms, I owe an enormous debt to my dear friend Karl Ludwig Schiebel and to our shared friend Bernd Leinweber of Frankfurt am Main. I also owe similar debts to my friends Amadeo Bertolo and Rosella Di Leo, who translated the book into Italian and saw to its publication in Italy. Many friends and consultants contributed to this book. Richard Merrill, who gave generously of his biological expertise. My children, Debbie and Joseph Bookchin, for the warm atmosphere they provided while the book was being written. Gina Blumenfeld, Daniel Chodorkov, David Eisen, Linda Goodman, and the book's excellent copy editor, Naomi Steinfeld. I wish to acknowledge the grant I received from the Rabinowitz Foundation for providing part of the means I needed to complete the first four chapters in the early 70s. I benefited greatly from the work of Max Weber, Paul Radin, and Dorothy Lee for the anthropological sections of this book. The writings of Peter Kropotkin and Karl Marx remain an abiding theoretical tradition to which I am deeply committed. In retrospect, I am less enamored by the Frankfurt School theorists than I was in the past, although their word magic their defense of reason over mysticism, and their demanding intellectual level remain as inspiring to me today as they were so many years ago. The Ecology of Freedom is a wayward book that has acquired a life of its own. I cannot refrain from inviting the reader to participate in formulating the changing views it expresses or should express. Such invitations were commonplace enough for authors to make 50 or so years ago, but they seem to be underway to oblivion in an age of mass media where every thought has to be spelled out merely to gain the reader's attention. Hence, I will close with the exquisite remarks, all failings of gender aside, of my favorite utopian, William Morris. Quoting, Men fight and lose the battle, and the thing they fought for comes about in spite of their defeat. And when it comes, turns out to be not what they want. And other men have to fight for what they meant under their name. Murray Pukchin, Burlington, Vermont, February 2005. Director Emeritus, Institute for Social Ecology, Plainfield, Vermont. Professor Emeritus, Ramapo College, Mahua, New Jersey. Preface to the 2005 AK Press Edition. The Ecology of Freedom has been in print for nearly 30 years and read by fairly demanding people in six different languages. Given it, its challenging depth and scope, it would be of considerable help in understanding its message for the reader to help an ample knowledge of nature philosophy, social history, radical theory, and current political affairs. Not surprisingly, the book has acquired a life and a following of its own, and is meant to be read on many different levels. I often lay out premises to which I hope the reader will add themes that merit further elaboration under new social circumstances and possibilities. Moreover, the reader is challenged to fill out themes that were only partly developed or hinted at in earlier works. Hence, the reader is invited not only to participate with the author on various levels of analysis, but in a very real sense to engage in an active authorial role in which he or she continually raises and strives to answer new questions that continue to emerge in periods of rapid social change. Accordingly, the ecology of freedom has never been a final statement of my views. Indeed, such finality never existed in the works of any serious author, 
because times are always changing, developing, ebbing, and thereby opening radically new ideological pathways. Yesterday's alleged final conflicts actually open new lines of thought that are opposite of earlier certitudes. Consider only the advances and regressions that were produced by the state, which at one time served the liberatory potentialities of citizenship as distinguished from the animalistic blood type, but in later times served the oppressive potentialities of kinship and the mindless dictates of biology in which choice had very little place, if any. The ecology of freedom also draws a sharp line between a simplistic theory of classificatory environmentalism and a sophisticated theory of the developmental social ecology, terms that are filled with many diverse meanings. To most readers, the word ecology means little more than what I call environmentalism, that is, the habitat in which human beings, other animals and plants live and interact. By social ecology, I therefore mean ecology as the dialectical unfolding of life forms from the simple to the complex, or more precisely, from the simple to the diverse. This interpretation is arguably problematical. It can be reasonably claimed that diversity in itself does not necessarily yield complexity, but what seems very clear is that without complexity there cannot be diversity. Thus, a tendency toward diversity to the emergence of a rich cosmos of life forms, a cosmos that makes up the multitude of selections in the geological, biotic, and even subjective universe in which we live. This cosmos also makes up the human-made universe, or the second nature we are imposing on non-human evolution, or first nature. I cannot emphasize too strongly that such twofold definition of nature is one of the most important distinctions I try to make in this book. Broadly, we must distinguish between a nature that is self-created and a nature that is humanly created. Ancient philosophy, particularly the work of Plato and Aristotle, danced around this problem when it tried to define the place of God in the universe as craftsman rather than as a thinker. What should be beyond dispute is that by making humanity the craftsman, who fashioned the universe rather than simply declared its existence, rebellious European theologians made human beings into a productive demiurge rather than the source of the mystical word. In short, a second nature was literally created, not simply pronounced. God became the creation of human beings, not simply a mystical creator. Social ecology, in turn, is a philosophy of evolution, not a mystical restatement of St. John's Apocalypse. Humanity, in turn, is both an extension of ecology's insight into social development from a biological first nature into society's second nature. The ecology of freedom tries to synthesize these two natures into a third nature. It tries to transform both non-human and human-made natures into a more complete nature that is conscious, thinking, and purposeful. This thinking nature is ethical and rational, not simply physiological and biochemical, and humanity is the most recent attribute among the many that evolution added over at least two billion years of organic development. The word social in social ecology serves the purpose of bringing the highest precepts of libertarian socialism into the concept of an ecological society, that is, a society that embodies the highest goals of thinkers like Aristotle, Spinoza, Hegel, Marx, and Kropotkin, to cite the philosophers who have most influenced my thinking. Social ecology, in effect, is a concept of an ever-developing universe, indeed a vast process of achieving wholeness, to the extent that it can ever be fully achieved, by means of unity in diversity, with creative potentialities that thematically intertwine two legacies or traditions. 
a legacy of freedom and a legacy of domination. These legacies interact to expand independently and interdependently the landscape of freedom and domination. These legacies use themes that have been elaborated primarily in the later writings of Marx and Kropotkin as two historical ends. It is thus possible to elaborate an inductive dialectic that can deal with themes like democracy, aesthetics, philosophy, the state, politics, and related so-called superstructural attributes of social and cultural life as integral parts of life and society, not simply as the offspring of economics that, according to Marx, formed the base of social phenomena. A polymorphous theory of history, so to speak, supplants the often narrow monism that prevailed among mechanistic Marxists like Friedrich Engels, George Plekhanov, Vladimir Lenin, et al., trapping Marx himself in the economistic mid-stage of his own cycle of theoretical development. In social ecology, democracy, for example, now becomes an end in itself, unfolding as a basic theme in the legacy of freedom. Similarly, the state can be explored as a basic component of the legacy of domination, often intertwining with the legacy of freedom, as when it secularized the blood tie into the civic taekwo citizen, then later became an instrument of class rule. The two chapters on these legacies thus form the book's essential structure and unifying orientation, its double helix, so to speak. Ernst Bloch, in his critical writings, seemed to find a principle of hope in almost every ideology he explored. The times in which I lived for some 80 years allowed for no such generosity. Still, I can single out one theme that will terminate either in an ever-expansive development of human freedom comparable to Marx's ideal of communism, or in an era of ongoing crisis and decline in humanity's relationship with the natural world. This book offers no guarantee of success with the outcome of human development, only the possibility of a rational outcome. In the ecology of freedom, the simplification of biotic evolution would become the harbinger of a world in dissolution. History, conceived as the overall rational continuum of human affairs, would disappear, and humanity itself would undergo self-dissolution. The disappearance of the organic would find its expression in the steady decline of complexity, in the replacement of meaning, consciousness, agency, and creative causality by complete purposelessness. This disassembly would constitute a conflict more final than the odious prospects of atomization and social breakdown that confronted humanity in the chronic social ties that marked the previous century. It is this that humanity faces in the coming years if the legacy of domination is permitted to unfold at the expense of the legacy of freedom. If we are to avoid this fate and fulfill instead the legacy of freedom's potentiality, we must transcend the ideological limitations of a mystical proletariat, a battle between undefined class interests and the simplistic aims that bind us to a world long gone. More than ever, we need a clearer vision of humanity's capacity to think as well as to act, to confront reality not only as it is, but as it should be, if we are to survive this, the greatest turning point in history. Footnote. Or. As young Marx so brilliantly put it in his contribution to the critique of Engels' philosophy of law, it is not enough for thought to strive for realization. Reality must itself strive toward thought. Karl Marx and Frederick Engels, Collective Works, Volume 3, Marx and Engels, 1843-1844, New York, International Publishers, 1975, page 100.
1983. Much has happened since The Ecology of Freedom was initially published in 1982. In that year, much of the utopistic sensibility of the 1960s was still in the air, and environmental movements were springing up throughout the world. Green political organizations were growing, especially in Western Europe and North America. A principle of hope still held some sway, as the deep reaction of the 1990s had yet to emerge. Yet I cannot emphasize too strongly that the revolutionary optimism that existed between the Russian Revolution of 1917 to 1918 and the Second World War had been gravely misplaced. Marxism, which regarded the success of revolutionary socialism as an imminent certainty, had totally misjudged the future of radicalism in this interwar period. As the myth of working-class hegemony faded with the end of World War II, as the certainty of a victorious world social revolution gave way to an extraordinary expansion of capital, as capitalism itself prospered, such as it had never done in the past, humanity was not living in the dusk of bourgeois society. Rather, capitalism may well have been emerging from its dawn, or at least was still rooted in an early stage of its development. All the estimates of the left on the decline of bourgeois society were wrong, as were the ebullient perspectives that followed in the wake of Red October. We did not know during the interwar period, nor do we know today, in what phase of capitalism we live. What is now clear is that it would be the height of self-deception to call capitalism today a moribund, decaying or dying social system the way we did between 1917 and 1945. Like it or not, capitalism today is robust materially, a fact that the left must finally face with the utmost candor. And we still do not know what forms and features it will have in the years that lie ahead. What is reasonably clear to me, and I voice this prognosis with the utmost caution, is that bourgeois society cannot continue its devastation of the ecosphere without destroying the biotic and climatic foundations of its own existence. If society as such is to survive, it must produce a radically new humanity nature dispensation. That is, we will either create a society that fosters the fecundity of biotic evolution and that makes life an ever more conscious and creative phenomenon, or produce a world that tears down these ecological elements. This precludes a society that is guided by the maxim of grow or die, the imminent bourgeois drive to reduce the organic to the inorganic in an ever-competitive frenzy of capital expansion and human exploitation. Capitalism has made social evolution hopelessly incompatible with ecological evolution. This is the definitive message of the ecology of freedom. There may be no proletarian revolution, no chronic economic crisis, no world wars, or even an inevitable final conflict between classes in the offing. But only science and techniques can contain the pollution and simplification of the planet, then there will decidedly be a crisis in the future that strips the biosphere of its very capacity to support complex life forms. This is one conflict that cannot be placed in doubt, for it blatantly challenges the existence of our species. All the problems explored by the ecology of freedom converge in the need to create an ecological society based on the new and organic politics called libertarian municipalism, a subject I explored in some detail in my later book From Urbanization to Cities, Continuum Books. Murray Bookchin, Burlington, 
Vermont, January 30th, 2005.